0: doing nothing is not an option as soon as you're named you've lost that killer drug has finally gotten the black box that it is due all along real malpractice never gets tried it gets settled
1: they all work for motrin they all must work (laughs) for motrin do they know something we don't where is this epidemic coming from and i've got conspiracy theories We've done something fundamentally
2: wrong. Where have you been, FDA? You've been too busy screwing around with a seat of here.
0: Rick, <laughs> uh, <laughs> shut uh, that my- up! Crawl <laughs> off the stand, <laughs> you miserable piece of
1: crap! Take my house too.
2: <laughs> Hello and welcome, Rick Peccato, Greg, Greg Henry. Mel Herbert sitting across the table here in Los Angeles doing the August issue of Risk Management Monthly. Gentlemen, welcome. Nice to see you all. Rick, it's a pleasure to be
0: back here at Casa
2: Bucata. Yes, Greg, you're in town for some courses that you're giving. You're going to take your daughter to dinner who now lives here, so now we have an excuse to get you out here. You do. You
0: really do, Rick, and it's always a pleasure.
2: And Mel just came from Grand Rounds at the University of Southern California.
1: And they were quite grand. Were they grand or grandiose? They were very good. We did some good stuff, and we streamed it live, Rick. We streamed it live, and people watching in chile south africa australia canada united arab emirates all from Al Grand Rounds.
2: Well, that's pretty impressive. Well, now that you're going to put that little pluggy in there, i got to tell you about emblog.com. emblog.com has got about 25 of the world's most famous doctors on it. I think it began about a week ago, but we've got a commitment. One new entry a day from all of these opinionated people. Check it out, emblog.com. Enough of the commercials. Moving on. Mel, you're going to tell us what's going on for this month's issue, right?
1: Right. So before we get into what we've planned on talking about, I just wanted to ask Greg about Barack Obama, our president, gave his big spiel last night, So it'll timestamp this about health care reform and the new sort of nationalized health care idea that he has, or at least a government plan that'll compete with the other plans. But Greg, did you hear anything in there about tort reform and how we might be dealing with that? Not a whit, Mel. I will say this
0: about my president, our president. He's a charming man, handsome, incredibly articulate, which clearly distinguishes him from the last president, but he has made the mistake that everyone does, and that is they're talking about only one aspect, which is the money. Now, there was some glimmer of hope, because he mentioned this panel, this MedPAC or MedPAC panel, which is going to be looking at the quality of care and what we're getting for certain health care. If there was a glimmer of hope in the talk, he used illustrations of where a lot of the things we do in medicine spend money for don't produce any advantage or any length of life or more importantly quality of life. I'm still waiting for him to talk about the other four areas. The workforce questions, the liability questions, the science questions, how much can we afford of the scientific research we're doing and what kinds of research we need to do. And lastly, we also have to talk about the distribution of that care around the country. Because health care is done differently in various areas. And we're going to have to go back to the literature and decide what we're going to do across the country and what we're going to pay for. I understand Barack's political problem. As soon as he starts using the R word, somebody's going to be unhappy. I would point this out, however, as you're seeing here in the state of California, money runs out. And if you don't do something, I will agree with Barack's point, doing nothing is not an option. Because if we keep spending money on the trajectory we're doing now, in 30 years, 50% of the gross national product will be health care. And that's irrational. We can't do it.
1: All right, well, let's get into more local news. And this was reported in the ArizonaCapitalTimes.com. So on July 13, Arizona's governor, Jay Brewer, signed into law a bill that would raise the burden of proof for medical malpractice suits against emergency physicians and on-call physicians. Here we go. The current standard says that you need a predominance of the evidence. She would like to raise that to clear and convincing evidence, the highest burden of proof in civil cases. Now, the idea, I guess, behind this is to encourage more physicians to practice emergency medicine in Arizona because there's a shortage of physicians. And one way she thought that we might be able to deal with this is to say, you really have to screw up. That's best as I understand it. You can tell me if that's true or not before you'll get sued. Is that how you understand this change in the burden of proof? First of all, for those of you who are listening who are not
0: into medical-legal terminology. The burden of proof is what it takes in the court of law to come up with a finding in favor of the plaintiff. You're all familiar with criminal cases in which you have to have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt for someone to be convicted. With preponderance of the evidence, that means if it's a 51-49 split, the 51 wins. And this is really the 75-25 mid-zone, which means it's got to be pretty damn good to make this, but it doesn't have to be at the level of beyond reasonable doubt, which is the criminal standard. I think what this does is it should make people feel easier, let them sleep better about taking call from the emergency department. This issue wasn't about emergency physicians as much as it was cardiologists, trauma surgeons, People who have to drive in in the middle of the night to do an operation, and what they want, if they're going to put their license and their reputations and their insurance policies at stake, they want some help here that they're going to get something. The problem in Arizona was that you had too many hospitals where people were just deciding no longer to take call. And so what this does is open up the situation where they can't use that as an excuse not to see patients from the emergency department And I support them all the way. I think Governor Brewer has done something here which is actually positive, which is moving to get more docs into the emergency department to see cases.
1: Well, this is interesting because there is obviously complaints about this, and one of the complaints comes from a plaintiff's attorney called Greg Patton. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Exactly so in opposition to this change he said look the standard of care already in place acknowledges all of the risks for caring for emergency department patients and that this law and i quote would chill a lot of legitimate meritorious medical malpractice lawsuits where people were injured he noted that physicians win already more than 90 percent of malpractice cases that go to trial and that this elevated burden of proof will simply make it harder for plaintiffs attorneys and i assume that he is one to sort of do their job and make sure that people aren't out there getting killed by these horrible physicians yes and i think that if it makes it harder for poor Greg Patent, good for
0: the law, we should be able to understand that emergency medicine is different than the standard contract which is signed in medicine. If I go into a physician and make a voluntary contract between the two of us to perform a procedure, that's one thing. If you come to an emergency department, the federal law states we must give them care. You do not have the option of making or not making that legal contract. And under such duress, there should be proper relief. And I think this illustrates proper relief for those people who are essentially the unpaid or uncompensated ministers of the government. You know, there's been some discussion in Washington on two things which ASEP wanted to get added to the health care bill. One was, if we're forced... To see everybody who comes to the emergency department, why can't emergency physicians deduct that off their taxes as sort of a voluntary payment, something they've given for the betterment of the society? A charitable contribution. A charitable-type contribution. The other one would be, since we are de facto federal employees, because we are seeing people under duress, the fear of punishment by the federal government, which is what Mtala is then at that moment in time, why doesn't the federal government take the liability of all those issues? I mean, since we are federal employees, in fact, the doctrine is respond out superior, let the master answer. And if my master is Mr. Obama and his cronies, it's okay by me, let them pick up the malpractice bill. This doesn't take it as far as I would like, but you know what? It's not bad.
2: Well, honestly, there is another side to this, and we brought this up on a recording a a long time ago. You mentioned that this is going to make the plaintiff's job more difficult and that you're happy with that, but the fact of the matter is that the plaintiff is representing a supposedly injured person. So it's really about the person that is injured that is going to have less access And we did go through the fact that in California, at least, the number of lawsuits is way, way down because the cap on pain and suffering is only $250,000, which is considered, you can't even buy a garage here, even with the real estate problem. And so we talked about the case where the anesthesiologist's mother who had her knees replaced at Stanford died within two days and nobody would take the case. We talked about the case where the child who had a clubfoot operation died as a result of the surgery and nobody would take the case because the kid isn't worth anything. So there is, from a very selfish point of view, yes, this is great, make it as hard as possible to have these folks win. But there is another side of this which needs to be taken into consideration. And he did point out, I think, two important points. Number. Number one, 90% of these journal trials go to the doctors in their behalf. And number two, that the standard of care already acknowledges that the ERs are not ideal places to work. There's all kinds of contingencies associated with being there, and that tends to level the playing field. Now, obviously, this is not a popular point of view for those of who you who are subscribing to Risk Management Monthly, but I feel obligated to portray the
0: other side of the coin just a little. Yeah. For those of you who are listening to us, I think I represent your view when I say, Rick, <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, shut the hell up. Uh, the <laughs> hell up. You know, Trying to be fair. That, oh. To say
0: that physicians win 90% of the malpractice cases, understand this. Got to go to trial. Real, real malpractice never gets tried. It gets settled. After all, we only take cases to trial, which we as experts and attorneys who have done this for years feel are winnable cases. Those where it's clear malpractice, those have been settled. So I think it's unfair to say that 90% of the malpractice cases tried go to the docs. That's true, but understand real malpractice represents those cases which never saw a courtroom.
1: And as Greg has told us many times, as soon as you're named, you've lost. Money exchanges hands. We will hear from our interview that just being named, getting a physician off a silly lawsuit costs 20000 $30,000, so if this results in less of the silly lawsuits then I think it's a good thing. Yes, I think
2: that's absolutely true. Make complaint
1: of lawyers take it if that's the real deal.
2: I don't think people are taking silly lawsuits. The engine of the lawsuit process says, I have to invest $20,000, and I'm taking a silly case.
1: Oh, you don't think there are silly lawsuits every single day?
2: No, honestly, I think that that is a common belief, but I think that in reality that's much less common. If you look at the number of lawsuits that are filed in Los Angeles County and California, With this cap on pain and suffering, there's just no money in it. They want bad babies. You know, give me a bad baby.
1: I think they're still Mr. Pendicitis. Silly. Every time. Silly. I
2: certainly agree with that. And so there I
1: there are silly lawsuits I, constantly.
2: Yep, The juries don't think they're silly. They do award money, but I always have a problem in these cases of where is the damages? And everybody makes up these whiny little excuses. Well, you might have some adhesions or you're in the hospital a day longer. Well, you don't even pay the bill anyway. Your insurance company pays the bill because you're in the hospital a day longer. Are you so important that you can't miss another day? I don't get it because Greg has told us you have to have damages, and I can't find out what the damages are in those cases. But be that as it may, people get sued for missed appendicitis. Let's move on. Greg, I think you've got another little legal thing that actually I thought this was very interesting because I am the director of our group and I recently probably two years ago got this insurance to cover the entity which is San Gabriel Valley Emergency Medical Associates, Inc. And this is about entity insurance, and it's a little technical, but I think it's kind of an important point.
0: It is technical, Rick, and this is an article done by attorney Brian Kern writing on Medscape, May 27, 2009. And he's looking at new trends in malpractice litigation, where what you're seeing is the involvement of all these other entities which may have been put up to try and block the ability of plaintiff's attorneys to get at actual funds of corporations. He notes here that the LLCs, which for those of you who are not into this, are the limited liability corporations, are useful in some industries in selectively protecting individuals from liability. But that's not the case in medicine. In general, the view is the physician caused the problem. So anything that blocks a way into that money is certainly challengeable and it's not as easy as we'd like to think. The usual situation is the physician is sued, his entity is sued, and the hospital is sued. So we have multiple pots of money. If the physician is so protected that only the Limited Liability Corporation is sued, then for some reasons they have to go back through those corporations to get at the physician. I think it would be wrong to think that the way these things are written, that the physician could not still be at risk. By the way, it's not just the plaintiff's attorneys. If you look at the underlying contract between the hospital and the group, there's almost always a concept which allows them to do something called cross-indemnification, which means if the hospital can show that there is no involvement of hospital employees then the group and the physician have to pick up the entire amount. It works both ways. A cross-indemnification would say if a nurse or a tech was the only reason this happened, then the hospital would pick up this mess. But I'll tell you, it almost 90% of the time runs the other way, and a hospital can present a group, just like yours, Rick, with a bill for any of their costs in a lawsuit if it eventually goes and the testimony is that it was just the physician's fault.
2: Well, the point that this author, I think, was trying to make is that if you have a doctor and that doctor is being sued, that doctor may have like a million dollar limit. And the idea is to make it more interesting to have another million-dollar limit like the entity so that the medical group that you're working with is now another million dollars. So now we can go after $2 million. We can get it from the doctor, and we can get it from the entity as well. And one of the things that they said is you need to be certainly aware of that because that increases the pot. But they also said that what you create is double jeopardy. Double jeopardy, I can get the doctor, and I can get the group for the same single institute and one of the things they said is many people now insure the entity the group and certainly everybody does it but they said in the process of you are insuring your group for a million dollars you create an incentive for that group to be named They certainly say you need to have lawyers and accountants and other people involved in this. But they suggest maybe you should insure your group only for the cost of defending yourself. Don't put a million-dollar limit on that so that, in fact, there is no $2 million limit. You're just going after the $1 million
0: limit. What actually happens, Rick, is in all these conversations between the hospital and the group, the hospital is sitting there telling you how much insurance you need. I haven't seen a contract in 20 years where the hospital hasn't said... Right, that's for the doctor, but it's not for my group. Well, understand this, hospitals are becoming much more sophisticated. And what they know is, if they can get another layer of insurance, they'll do it. I'll speak very frankly, I'm not in favor of big policies, these huge $12 million policies. All that does is give an incentive for the plaintiff to go after that, and it changes the discussion in settlement because they know there's cash there. The way insurance is going right now and the price of insurance, can you really afford to carry full value on both the entity and the individual doctors? I think that's very hard. Those of you who are ER
2: directors, I would suggest that you go to Medscape May 27th and read this paper by Brian Kern. It will put a totally different perspective on the aspect of insuring your entity and the Double jeopardy that you are
0: inducing by that process. Let's at least comment on his four options here. Brian says that we should use one policy limit to cover multiple entities if possible. I think that's right. It should be viewed as one limit. If you want to have another policy to cover the legal costs of your entity, that's fine. But it should be one entity, one instance, and not a lot of separate policies. His second point is have physicians share their respective limits with the corporate limits to bring everything under one umbrella. And I think that makes the simplest discussion. Here's the place you don't want to be that I've seen probably half a dozen times, and that's where there's a separate policy by a separate insurer on the corporation. And now it's pissing and moaning and fighting with the doctors corporation if they're not coordinated you can have serious problems he also suggests to be clever when it comes to insuring the entities you know high deductibles that sort of thing may help work and the last thing is before you buy a new policy take your current insurance policy and actually read it and take it to somebody an independent party and say what's actually covered here where are the loopholes where can they get through And lastly, I would suggest, look at that relationship with the hospital. Because if they are on a regular basis putting you on notice for cross-indemnification, understand you have another enemy at the table. It's not just the plaintiff. It's the hospital who would like to send you the bill.
2: Okay, the last element we have in the what's in the news that relates to these legal matters, which are kind of a little dry. Yeah legislation that was introduced in Ohio that basically says in the setting of an emergency or disaster, doctors need to be shown to be willful or wanton misconduct, willful or wanton misconduct. And to show willful or wanton misconduct, you have to show that there is proof of intent that you were wanting to be.
0: Actually, for willful and wanton, Rick, they actually just show your picture and people understand the situation. But intentional infliction is where this is going. And you talk about a standard, which is hard for the plaintiff to meet that's a standard. This is only in the setting of disasters. It's not the emergency
2: room care. They also point out that this bill was drafted by ACIP's chapter there and the Ohio State Medical Society. Other states that have it, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Texas and West Virginia and in March Utah became the latest state to enact such legislation. Louisiana actually also bumped up its standard to willful misconduct or gross negligence. Obviously there is some pushback from the attorneys here. For example, in 2008 The Oklahoma Supreme Court rejected as unconstitutional a $300,000 non-economic damage cap in cases of emergency care. So I think it's good to know that in certain situations where there is a disaster, a Katrina or something like that, that the bar has been
0: raised in terms of what people can go after you for. In all fairness to Oklahoma, you're mixing metaphors here a little bit, the Oklahoma decision, had to do with all emergency care. What we're talking about here in Ohio is disaster. That was very
2: astute of you, because even though that metaphor was in the article written by this attorney, they are actually on different points. The idea that limiting pain and suffering isn't unconstitutional is what
0: Oklahoma said. This is what kicked off this entire discussion, was the Katrina question. When we had physicians ready, willing, and able, and you know there were more physicians who wanted to go down than they could even use, and then this liability question was raised. You know what? What we've done with this, this fear of lawsuit, and by the way, I believe the fear is worse than the actual threat of lawsuit, but when doctors are afraid to volunteer their time in a national disaster, we've done something fundamentally wrong. And I think that this idea that if there's a disaster situation, docs, jump in there. God love you. Thank you for helping out. This is where we should have been all along. We're the only country in the world, I think, where they go after and sue you after a hurricane like Katrina and someone is going to take you to task for helping out. Fundamentally
1: wrong. So these situations are not covered under the sort of the Umbrella of Good Samaritan laws. (laughs) No,
0: because a Good Samaritan act, remember, we talked about this in a previous tape, is there is no previous doctor-patient relationship, and you've come upon the scene. If you've decided to go down from California to Louisiana, you've made a conscious decision in advance to participate in medical care. That's not what Good Samaritan is. Good Samaritan is when you come upon the scene or you're involved in some care which was not anticipated, not planned. Good Samaritan is really quite a different situation. This should be a national bill. If Barack wants to do something for us and to help the citizens of the United States, just make this federal law that would supersede all the state Yes, statutes. and declared disasters, yes. Yeah, and declare, they federally declare disasters. That's
1: where it needs to be. They need to declare my hospital a disaster. That would help out. Then I can do the right thing with that big word.
0: That's right. Aren't you technically a disaster every
1: day? Is that the answer?
2: Our next segment. Actually, we have two elements of this segment. One is an article that we came upon about, about how the electronic medical record can get you into trouble. And Mel's going to tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, you guys have been doing a lot of stuff on the EMA tapes on electronic medical records. Remember, that's very different from physician order entry, which I know a number of people were getting confused about the nomenclature we're using here. But this is basically generating nomenclature. the Nomenclature? Ch- what the... Nomenclature? That's a big word, but go that? on. I thought it was nomenclature. Nomenclature. Is the Aussie country. way? Is that yeah, like it's the from model? this country, yes. I'm I'm not from ahead. this country. From so this planet. So here's an article by Steve Kern in Medscape that said, look, here are some of the pitfalls. You need to think about some of the pitfalls of electronic medical records. Now, of course, again, we have to go back to Mr. Obama, and a big push is electronic medical records, electronic macroids. You hear it every five minutes. So this guy, Steve Kern, says, look, there's a couple of problems with this. First of all, what you're going to create here are these macros, these boilerplate.'" that have larger-than-life histories. It was a dark and stormy night, and the patient came to the ER, and it's like a 500-page dissertation on what happened. And some of the problems with this is that the positive findings, the things you really care about, get lost within this huge mass of information. And that can be a problem maybe medico-legally, but it's also a problem just when I want to read the chart of the patient that Greg saw yesterday, and I want to get to the important part because this person's sick. And I can't find it because it's buried deep within this thing. That is one of the problems that he considers.
2: Well, actually, you may not be able to find it because the really important part would have required Greg to physically type something in. He was busy and he didn't do it. So all of you have is this bland macro that doesn't really tell you as much as you thought it was
0: going to. Let me tell you, if you're waiting for Greg to type it in, you're going to be waiting a <laughs> long time. And the bottom line of this is we've got to ask what we're getting for our time and investment of physician time. Why would you take the most highly paid and the most intellectually productive of the people who are involved in this care and sit them at a typewriter? It well, that's makes an efficiency no question. What sense.
2: we're talking about here is a risk management question.
0: So they're saying these records can get you in trouble. Well, efficiency and risk management are two sides of the coin, because if you can't do it efficiently and there's a pressure to see patients, you'll do it inefficiently. And worse than that, you'll short shrift what you need to write down on the chart. That's the problem.
1: There's another editorial that I guess you guys have done, it's from the American Journal of Medicine by Siegler in June of 2009, and they cite these problems of cutting and pasting. So you're seeing a patient, and Greg saw him yesterday, and I cut and paste the stuff that Greg said about the patient, into my medical record. Very efficient. It gets done very quickly. But if Greg screwed up, what I've done is basically compounded the problem. I've just duplicated his ridiculous history of physical onto mine. Extremely efficient use of a bad record. And it breaks a medical legal
0: rule, which is when the patient comes back a second time, assume that something was missed and redo it. If you don't go back in, retake some history, redo some physical, you know, that's where patients fall through the crack, is we think it was done right the first time. I guess my teaching is first time, okay, second time, rethink the issue, and third time, just admit them, because we've missed something serious in between.
1: Now, they also talk about the use of the wrong or an inadequate template, and they give this great example. So the template says, and it's beautifully written, and it's very easy to read, the patient was oriented to person, place, and time, but it turns out the patient was one year old. So clearly, there was just like, click the macro, in comes this, they're fine. And instead of making it age-appropriate, it was just this global, the person's awake, alone-oriented. The credit- one-year-old says the time? I don't think so. It discredits think the so.
2: record. And once right. you discredit one part of the record, then it leaves the rest of the record open to be challenged.
0: I saw that in court on a H-E-E-N-T normal. and The guy had one glass eye. And so now, everything else that was done on that case, and by the way, it had nothing to do with the eyes had to do with a belly case, but everything else on that record is now put into question fact, it was
1: very interestingly handled by the plaintiff's counsel. And that was a little surprise that fell on the physician. And you can also pull up the wrong template. You know, you're looking after shoulder dislocation and you pull up the template for a nasal fracture or something ridiculous like that. So that's also a problem. They suggest that maybe this could also be changing the standard of care. So this will be interesting. So if we use more and more of these medical records and they're better at catching adverse drug reactions. Theoretically. Theoretically and medical errors, and this kind of stuff, will it become the standard of care so that if you're not using one of these, that you could get in trouble? No, there's been nothing posited
0: so far that says that a well-done handwritten record or a free-form dictation record should be considered below the standard of care. And in my opinion, free-form dictation, if well done, is the ultimate. The problem with it is it's too damn expensive for the hospitals to keep up. there's a reason why we have these things, and it's a cost reason. It costs 13 dollars bucks on average to type a chart if it's all free-form dictation. And you could do it for about 4 bucks a chart if you do one of these electronic signature charts. That doesn't take into effect, by the way, the inefficiencies of having a doctor doing these things.
1: You know, there's some other issues that they bring up, but what's interesting is that, theoretically, I guess here, the Obama plan would provide lots of money to physicians who demonstrate meaningful use of electronic medical records by 2011, and then rolling over the next five years or so, if you're not using them, you're going to lose money. So, If that's true, then you're going to see these explode, because if I get an extra $44,000 for using one of these things, I'm using one of these things. Yeah, Just understand,
0: there is no perfect electronic record at this moment in time. If you go to the ASAP meeting, the national meeting, and you're down on the display floor where all the people come to hawk their wares, three-quarters of them are computer programs of some kind. I don't think you can buy a used car anymore because all those people are now selling computer programs at the ASAP meeting. If there was one clearly definitive electronic program that everybody saw as best, that's the one that would win in the country. And it hasn't happened yet. Plus, my
2: electronic medical record doesn't talk to your electronic medical record, doesn't talk to his electronic medical record. So it's fine. It's great. It's in the hospital, and they push the emergency physicians to use it. What about the other five or six or 700 members of the medical staff? Are you going to teach all those people how to use an electronic medical record? Most of them are older. Good luck. And yet, also, show me the proof that it is better, faster, safer, That stuff is very tenuous. So the fact of the matter is is that, yes, it's coming. Yes, it's being pushed. It has been given a pass on anything resembling evidence. Right. But the fact is that here are some potential downsides that you need to be aware of. And the same thing has been shown with CPOE, although that has been more readily embraced by people. I have an article that says 22 ways where CPOE can cause mistakes.
1: Yeah, and this may be a little unfair because, of course, there are problems with electronic medical records, but there's certainly problems with writing out the medical record. There's problems with everyone, but if we're going to implement these huge changes and spend billions of dollars, shouldn't we spend a little bit of money up front to work out what is the best way to do it? Is it dictation? Maybe it's different things under different circumstances, but just to say a computer must be better is wrong. It's wrong.
2: So there's a little discussion in the literature about electronic medical records. It's really fortuitous. Earlier today, we called Kathy Bowerman, who's been a friend of Greg's for many, many years, probably 30 plus. She's a lawyer who specializes in defending doctors, particularly in regards to emergency medicine litigation. And out of the blue, we asked her, Kathy, tell us what you think about what's hot. And she suggested... Problems associated with
0: electronic medical records it was like it was a gift from the gods. It was <laughs> unbelievable that without one bit of prompting, no nudge, no nothing, first thing out of her mouth, the electronic medical record sucks in the emergency <laughs> department and here are the mistakes that I've seen. Actually, we ought to get to Kathy's interview and let's hear what she had to say.
3: Well, this month we have a special guest. You know, in the past we've done some interviews with attorneys, and we haven't done one in a while. So Greg has a good friend back in Michigan who he's going to introduce to us, who's on the line, Kathy Bowerman. Take it away, Greg.
4: Thanks, Rick. I think everybody ought to know that we need full disclosure here. Kathy and I have been interacting on cases for over 30 years. And it almost frightens me, and that's really strange because she tells guys in bars that her age is 28. So let's just understand the fact that this is a but woman. I'm a with lawyer, a...
5: <laughs> so nobody believes me anyway.
4: Well, that's exactly right. Understand that this woman has a huge experience, not just as an attorney, but as one who's defended physicians and has really made sort of a subspecialty career of emergency doctors and I can't tell you how important it is when you sit down with an attorney that they understand the problems of emergency medicine and what a standard of care in emergency medicine means. Kathy is a graduate of the law school at the University of North Carolina and is a senior partner with the defense firm of Simeon Huckabee in Detroit and spent her entire life legally defending physicians. Kathy, welcome. And I don't want to build you up too much here, but you are the attorney who got sodomy reduced to following too close.
5: Twice for you, Greg.
4: (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much. Let me just say that most of the people who are listening to us today are practicing emergency physicians. This is, despite what some people might think, a major concern of everybody practicing, is how to avoid getting caught in the loop. Can you tell us what you've seen as new trends in emergency medicine malpractice, where the plaintiffs are going and what the allegations are that we should be aware of?
5: Yes. I would say that the number one thing that comes to my mind in the last few years with increasing in frequency has to do with charting issues and specific electronic medical records. With the trend, the irreversible trend, I might add, of of emergency departments and other healthcare providers switching over to the electronic medical record. There is, like everything else in medicine and perhaps in life, a learning curve, not only for the physicians and healthcare providers learning how to use the system, but for the systems themselves getting the kinks out. What I have found is, in recent years, is the cause of many lawsuits has to do with the fact that the communication on an electronic medical record, certainly for any lawyer or anyone looking at it after the fact, leaves a lot to be desired. There are a lot of holes in documentation, either because the computer template just doesn't allow for the type of variety of problems that come up in an emergency department, but Also, because by the time someone actually enters something into the record, the computer has an accurate time, but it is not reflective of when actually events have occurred.
4: Well, that's Um, probably a good spot for us to jump off and look at the specifics of this because whenever a nursing note is put in the chart, it's always a summary note of things which happened before. So it's not the specific time that the patient was intubated, for example, it's the time that they wrote their note. And so when they write, doctor Henry entered the room, IV started, patient intubated, blood drawn, chest tube put in, and their notes dated seven fourteen, you can't assume that everything happened at seven fourteen. There had to be some timeline before that.
5: Well, that's exactly right, and I think as much problem as the medical record was before when it was handwritten for these second-to-second events and transactions, it has only become all the more difficult because the computer puts in the time whether you like it or not. And obviously, if you try to enter a time, it's going to be a time off your own watch or a clock in the department, which may not jive with what's in the computer as to the time. So that right off the bat is one obvious problem. But the other obvious problem, and I think T-sheets, which are still used in some places, I think of the T-sheet as somewhat the precursor to the electronic record, because it's a pre-printed template. But just like the T-sheet, and you can have 50 different T-sheets in an emergency department, you're always going to find that patient who doesn't fit any T-sheet. And so trying to use a T-sheet that doesn't apply to a given patient and how they progress and what they present with and what you think they came in with and they ended up coming in with something entirely different, the same problems come up with the electronic record and perhaps even more so because once you put it in the computer, you can't change it out of the computer. And plaintiff lawyers are getting the same education, perhaps a bigger, faster education than physicians, to know that once something has been put in the computer, no matter how quickly you delete it, it is always there. So there is no going back to change things without a need to explain.
4: Kathy, I've been finding, and I'd like to hear your opinions on this, that in some of the electronic records, it's very hard for the doctor to easily and conveniently get a hold of the nursing charting. And so although it's nicely printed out by the computer at the time when the physician really needs it, it can be very difficult to know what the nursing charting actually says.
5: Well, that's true. And for somebody like yourself, Greg, who is computer illiterate and untrainable, (laughs) And frankly, I say that with jest, but to be perfectly honest, there are a lot of you out there, and I'm not that savvy myself, the thought that healthcare is dependent on your computer skills over and above your medical and clinical instincts is very dangerous. It means that not only do you have to know medicine well, But you've got to know the computer system well. And then, of course, there's always the time when the computer system goes down for five minutes or an hour. And that happens with more frequency than anyone wants to agree that it happens. But when that happens, all of the information goes down with it. And if you are in a time crunch circumstance and a need-to-know information-right-now circumstance all of that creates kind of a fatal circumstance and easy picking grounds for a plaintiff's attorney.
3: Kathy, I'm so glad that you have brought this up because these electronic medical records are supposedly going to be the savior of medicine, but the fact of the matter is, is that many times they substitute quantity for quality and the ability for a physician to describe a history of present illness indicating the intensity of the problems and using the adjectives that they would normally use in a dictated record or even a written record, it's very, very difficult to do that on a computerized macro pull-down, pull-down, pull-down menu system. So what you get is... qualitative difference in terms of the record. It may look great when it's printed out. It'll be very typographically perfect. But the fact of the matter is, is that its content is substantially lacking what may occur through a dictated record, particularly on the more complex cases. An ankle sprain is no big deal. But when you get somebody who's got an injury and how did that injury occur and did they get dizzy before they fell down and all of these nuances, it takes a lot of fortitude on the part of an emergency physician to be willing to start typing all of that stuff in because it doesn't lend itself to the macros that are there for you. So, and it's interesting also that you mentioned, I just was involved in a case where I reviewed it and it was an urgent care center case in which the electronic medical record that they used was a disaster in terms of reflecting a credible interaction with the patient because the record was so poorly done because the physician didn't know how to use it all that well. It wasn't all that well created in terms of its design, and it was embarrassing to have to go through that record and defend it. The other thing that you mentioned about the T-sheet, I did a case where a doctor actually fell while skiing and dislocated her shoulder. So they pulled the dislocated shoulder page and uh, filled it out very nicely, except for the fact that she also kind of bumped her face a little bit, but that didn't fit onto the shoulder page, so they kind of didn't put much down about it, and they missed the blowout fracture that she had, which was the source of the lawsuit that subsequently followed. So there's really great opportunities in these
4: mechanisms to really lead you down the garden path.
3: You know, as I look
4: at these prefab records and the templates, electronic or manual, there are two areas where they are weak. The first one is in complex history of medical illness, and the second one is in management decision analysis Why you did what, what you thought, and in the follow-up program areas, they are often extremely weak. And my reading of the literature and and my own experience of cases is that it's in the follow-up programs and in the thought programs where we really have the most problems with lawsuits.
5: I think that's true, although it's also true. Rick, you've given a great example with the case that you just talked about with the blowout fracture. We actually tried one very recently in Ann Arbor where the physician was in his second or third shift using the electronic medical record. The system had been in place for less than a month at this particular hospital, and it was full of kinks. The system itself was full of kinks, and, of course, the physician new to the system, had a hell of a time trying to figure out where to put things. There was no place, for instance, for when he called a doctor to record who he called and what he called that person for. And exactly what time he called him. There was a, another circumstance where they had a template for a syncopal episode, but they didn't have a template for a pre episode. Someone who got dizzy but didn't lose consciousness. And it made a huge difference. And then this particular patient came in with atrial fibrillation, which created a further complication because when they went to order medication, the system wanted to spit out a different dose of heparin based on different criteria. And it just became a nightmare. The doctor had to choose in this minute-to-minute circumstance whether to pay attention to the medical record or just ignore the medical record and try to take care of the patient. Obviously, he chose the latter, and we spent years in a case trying to explain it, even though he had done a terrific job of taking care of the patient. The record was not reflective of that because of the holes in the electronic record. Well,
4: Kathy, while we've got you on the line, obviously the only thing that the plaintiff has to look at to decide to file a case is the record. He doesn't get to talk to me. He doesn't get to talk to the nurses. He gets a copy of the record and decides whether he can make anything out of this. So with your experience, give us the three or four most important things the emergency doc can do to make a great record.
5: Well, I don't think the rules have changed in that regard from what they were when I started practice 33 years ago, and that is the record needs to make sense from start to finish. You need to have as always, and the problem here is is how to accomplish that, but you need to have a history and physical that then follows a logical sequence from that in terms of what tests are ordered, the results of those tests, what treatment is given, the results of that treatment. I would say if anything is often overlooked in recording, particularly in these electronic records, is when a treatment is administered, recording what the results of that treatment. Did the patient get better? Are they more alert? Is their pain level down? And then, of course, following in the logical sequence, what the diagnosis is, provisional diagnosis is, and what follow-up care in what time course that follow-up care was created to be followed. It's no different today than it was 30 years ago. But the problem is, You have to be more creative and more persistent in trying to find your way through the system and making sure that record looks well, looks logical as you go through. One of the
3: things that I bring up over and over in terms of trying to be a Stone Age physician about this stuff is to ask whether these electronic medical records are making our care better and are they allowing us to seek patients faster. And the answer appears, honestly, to be neither of the two. I recently talked to a physician actually just yesterday who works at Kaiser Hospital where they have the EPIC system which is supposedly this grand, wonderful, multi-billion dollar system. He says at Kaiser he sees about one patient an hour. It takes him 15 minutes to do the same type of documentation that he would normally do at other hospitals in a fraction of that time and he mentioned to me that at another hospital where he works, where he has scribes that they see three patients an hour. The same doctor, same intensity of severity and the mechanism by which these charts are being generated, totally different and much, much, much slower because this doctor is conscientious and it's easy to be lazy on electronic medical records and not create a record that is truly a reflection of what transpired, particularly a history of present illness and medical decision-making where you're talking about the response to therapy, the call that you made to the family doctor, he'll see him in the morning at 10 o'clock, All of that is very difficult to do in these electronic records, but they are considered to be the standard of care in terms of what is expected with regards to emergency medicine documentation.
4: Yeah, Um, Rick, you just said a nasty word, standard of care, and we'd like to tell everyone out there that if you're still using the handwritten chart or you're doing free dictation, believe me, we still consider that part of the standard of care. It's what you write down, not how it gets recorded. Wash my mouth out. Wash your mouth out with soap, you bad man. Never use that term, standard of care. Ms. Bowerman understands the great pitfalls of the term standard of care, which is not a medical term but a legal term.
5: I want to interrupt you a second. There's one thing that I think before we leave this last subject that I want to point out, and it's something that you and I have experienced recently in reviewing a case, and that is the vital signs. They are taken on every case, regardless of whether the patient comes in with a splinter to be removed from the bottom of a foot or someone who comes in with chest pain. And what I think physicians tend to forget and healthcare providers tend to forget is whatever information is placed on that record, you're responsible for it at some point in retrospect. So if... A vital sign is going to be taken on every patient. It means regardless of whether it's important to your care and treatment in the department, you need to look at it and you need to address any abnormalities, such as an innocent elevated, significantly elevated blood pressure, which may have nothing whatsoever to do with the cut on the back of the hand that the patient came in with. But when that patient drops dead the next day or has an MI two days later and that chart is pulled and that high blood pressure reading is recorded without any comment, the flag is up and the war is on. So as nice as it is to have electronic records that provide a lot of information, it so goes with the information, the responsibility to make sure you've seen it and done something about those pieces, relevant or irrelevant, in that chart that will come back to bite you in the future.
4: Well, Kathy, you've given us a lot of good insights, and it's always a pleasure to have someone with your level of experience here on Risk Management Monthly. We thank you for taking the time and hope that you will agree to speak with us again on some of these issues.
5: I'm delighted to thank you for the opportunity to join you.
2: Thanks
4: very much, Kathy. Appreciate it.
2: Okay, let's move on to black box warnings. There were two black box warnings that came out, I think, in July, and then I want to talk about one that's been out for about a year, but I think it's very important. So the first one is on acetaminophen. That killer drug has finally gotten the black box, and it is due all along.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, there's problems in the country, Rick. There's the attack of the killer fawns in Michigan. That's why we shoot deer, so the killer fawns don't get you. But the article by Emily Walker in the MedPage Today detailed the various decisions of the FDA's Drug Safety and Risk Management Advisory Panel. And when this hit the news... This just didn't stay in the medical community. This is everywhere. And now all we'd have to do is mix that in with the Michael Jackson events that have been going on. And I'll tell you, this thing hit like a bomb. Because basically what it's talking about is a drug which is probably given out 6 billion times a year in doses. This is a 6 billion person planet. Everybody takes one of these a year and probably a little more. And what it actually shows is that at a vote of 36 to 1... 36 to 1, that's unbelievable. They all work for Motrin. They all must work for (laughs) Motrin. They said that they were going to vote a series of recommendations, and the first one is the combination drugs. There isn't a doctor who's listening to us right now who doesn't write for Vicodin, Percocet, Tylenol 3s, one of those things, and all of them have acetaminophen in them, every single one. And they
2: also said in this paper and commentary that when it's a 36 to 1 vote, although this is a recommendation of these, actually there's three panels who came up together with this, this will not be rejected by the FDA.
0: Yeah, and I think that these things get on a roll. I think there's a lot of people involved in voting who are purists in a lot of ways. And the truth of the matter is they say, well, there's 42,000 people in the U.S. each year who come to EDs with acetaminophen overdoses. And someone has parenthetically said well it's the combination drugs are a part of this i'm not sure that's the case yeah they said of the 42000 misadventures with acetaminophen half of them were accidental uh, you know you can't tell that looking in my er records no no absolutely not. in fact one <laughs> panelist said 10% of the acetaminophen overdoses were because of these combination products. And now, he may have a different experience than I do in practice. Do you remember the last time you treated one of these, acetaminophen overdose based on a combination with a narcotic? I'll tell you, I've never seen one of these. And I don't know why it's a big issue right now, but I think they get into a funk that they'd like to show that they have power and they're trying to protect the people. I'm not sure this thing is anything at all. But they're talking about it. And the FDA wants to remove all these over-the-counter combinations as well that have acetaminophen in them. Now, whether they've got some better data there or not,
1: I'm not sure. But you know what? This doesn't seem to be a good idea to me. You've hit it on the head. Do they know something we don't? Because all our combined experience, and when I say all of us, I mean like every emergency physician in the country's experience, is that this is not an issue. If you want to kill yourself with acetaminophen, yes, you can. You have to work very hard at it, but you can. I don't know anybody, and we've talked about this a lot, with 20, 30 physicians in the last two weeks. When was the last time, just as Greg said, that you had to give N-acetylcysteine and send somebody to the unit because they took too much of their cough medicine and they took some acetaminophen at the same time? And there's this blank stare. What the hell are you talking about? That doesn't happen. So do they know something we don't? Where is this epidemic coming from? And I've got conspiracy theories. Is there a new form of acetaminophen coming to market or something? What's going on here? Well, the
0: other thing is, as soon as they've decided we're going to dispense some of these drugs in smaller amounts, you can't have a bottle that's greater than 24 pills. What does that do? There is probably five or six or seven recommendations
2: that were voted on. Only a couple of them had this 36 to one kind of thing. and So a lot of them are much less close in terms of some of these other issues, in terms of saying, well, you have to get rid
0: of the 500 milligram pill. You can only have 325 milligram pill. I think that there was one recommendation which was voted on and one approved that we need to comment on, and that had to do with liquid preparations for children being of different strengths. Now, the problem is when parents look at a bottle with the medication in it, they would assume that it's probably the same bottle they got the last time. Maybe a single strength liquid preparation would be the way to go, and I'm not against that as a logical step. The problem is... Most of the other steps are illogical. Well, this
2: was one of the 36 to 1 votes yes. about let's make it all the same concentration for yep. the kitties. One of the things that they've done in England for a long time is make this available in small quantities in blister packs where you would exsanguinate from the cuts on your fingers trying to open these blister packs enough to kill yourself. Fortunately for Costco and other retailers, the panel defeated by a 20 to 17 vote a proposal to limit downsizing in the number of pills that you could purchase at Costco where I like to wheel them out in a 55-gallon drum. Thank you yeah, very yeah, much.
1: Yeah, Exactly. Over the years, you and Jerry have done multiple studies on the correct dose of acetaminophen and all of the studies have not said you're using too much they all say you're using too little but maybe you should be using 20 milligrams per kilogram or 30 milligrams per kilogram and i think the only real group that this gets into problems with is somebody who's really hitting it hard with the alcohol or something else that's destroying their liver and then they take a reasonably big dose on top of that normal people i don't see this as an issue
0: if you're talking about most of these papers that have been in the abstracts Almost all of them say the same thing. Short-term use of the drug is not the question of the problem. You're right. For those people, we need to hit them hard and get off of it quickly. And then that's never a problem. And if you look at this, this tends to be chronic usage. The problems are with chronic usage over a period of time or combined with another element like the alcohol. That will give you some liver problems. But in general, you're right. I think we're underdosing acetaminophen in children. And I have no reason to believe the problem with these studies is that it tends to discourage people from using what is an innately safe
2: drug. I think that's one of the points is now that this drug has been vilified, what's left? What's left is ibuprofen. You want to talk about a drug that's basically much, much more dangerous than Acetaminophen. 50
0: or 100 times more dangerous. It's
2: like it's ridiculous because there is this big fright now that this drug is bad. What is the numerator and what is the denominator? And you can't protect people from themselves. Right. The other thing I'm concerned about is, well, what will Vicodin now be? Will it be straight oxycodone or hydrocodone where we don't have any breaks on why people, I'm going to take about 40 of these babies kind of thing. Now, I don't have to worry about the acetaminophen. They got that toxic drug out of here. I'm just going to overdose. On
1: straight narcotics. Yep. I want to go back also and talk about the kids again. Let's remember that acetaminophen is even safer in children than in adults. They've ramped up sulfonation pathways. They don't get the toxicity that adults do. So I agree. I love the idea as a parent of a child who's now nine and has had different doses of acetaminophen. I love the idea of making a standard concentration because it is confusing. I'm not worried about overdosing my son. I'm worried about underdosing him because it's so confusing. So fix that to get the right dose into the kid is fine, but not because we're killing kids with acetaminophen.
0: No, the kids have cytochrome P450 coming out their butt they handle this much better than the average alcoholic does the other one i
2: wanted to get into was the quinolones and tendon rupture kind of thing and the black box that is on the entire quinolone family including cipro which is not generally viewed as one of these respiratory fluoroquinolones which is given out for bronchitis like water so greg you want to tell us a little bit about that black box because I- well i'll tell you a bit
1: i'll uh, tell you a bit i'm sorry it's- so this is another Medscape story, and I'm going to pronounce the name wrong, but it's by Yael Wankney, something like that, from July of 2008. So a little more than a year ago, the FDA put a black box warning on the fluoroquinolones and said, look, these are associated with tendinitis and tendon rupture, we've known this forever. Since they first came out, these DNA gyrase inhibitors, we've been worried about them in rats in big doses. You can produce cartilage problems, and initially we were worried about kids, developing kids as they're growing. But then it became clear, or we think it's clear, through sort of retrospective studies in large databases that the 45-year-old guy playing hoops on the weekend ruptures a tendon. seems to be more likely that he's had a recent dose of fluoroquinolones than the person who didn't rupture the tendon. So it appears that that rate of tendon rupture is about three to four-fold sort of the background rate and there's other conditions that increase that risk. So, again, I'm not so worried about this alone. I don't think you take a fluoroquin alone and then all your tendons burst. But if you're uh, also on steroids, if you've got kidney disease, if you've got heart disease, if you had a heart transplant, and if you're really, really old, over the age of 60, oh, um, oh. with some of these problems, and you did take he hear fluoroquinolones... What, did you hear what he said, Rick? I'm, getting, I'm getting chest pain. <laughs> it's a good my hearing is getting worse. Go ahead. So what I get out of this is... I think you need to be careful if you've got multiple risk factors, and you're about to start one of these things, and the guy says, and I'm going to go play in my football game on the weekend. I'm like, maybe you shouldn't do that. But again, I'm not sure how big a deal this is, but I'll have to tell you the truth. I don't know the data directly, and I'm sure this is all just population-based. There are associations, but is it as big a deal as the FDA? Well, they say...
2: I think this is kind of a bit of the conspiracy theory. The Public Citizens Advocacy Group, I forget their name exactly. Oh, yeah, it's called Public Citizen. They initiated a lawsuit against the FDA saying, listen, we submitted to you 16 months ago a serious concern regarding tendon rupture, and you have done nothing. Therefore, we are now suing you to act on that. And as soon as they sued them, they acted on this. This group basically is beating their chest about saving the world about fluoroquinolone tendon ruptures. And they pointed out, yeah, it's Three to five, four times more common. That's a misleading statement. Three to four times more common. But what's the absolute number? How many people are we talking about? And one of my concerns is, these drugs are the drugs which are, are given out every day for a community-acquired pneumonia. It's the one pill. You don't have to take azithromycin plus a ceftriaxone. It lasts once a day. It's the ideal pill. Now there's a black box around it. This black box says, is the preponderance of evidence such that this is better to take this drug than to take that drug knowing this box is there? See, the issue with acetaminophen is kind of not there. They're going to take it all away from us. We will have no choices They'll make the dosing the same for the kids. They're going to take the cinnamon out of the Tylenol with codeine. We won't have any discretion. But in this case, we do have discretion. What drug are you going to be prescribing now for somebody who's admitted with pneumonia to the hospital? And they're going to say, well, listen, I ruptured my tendon. Doctor, was there another alternative available? And the answer is yes, there was. So I think this puts a tremendous burden on us because they're saying, listen, we warned you, it happened, and why didn't you pick something else? Well,
0: actually, what we're saying here is stay tuned. We don't know where this is going. I'm sure that very few people who are listening to this program actually warn their patients who they put on Cipro each time, that you could have a tendon rupture. I want to see how that progresses. More than that, we don't know what the time period is between the stopping the drug and your tendonitis is. Does that mean that if you stop the drug today, in two weeks, you're going to rupture a tendon? I That's, don't think those well, are known yet. This
2: association appeared to be compelling enough to black box this drug, and I think one of the things that they basically also in the process of black boxing this drug, they also came out with this idea that the FDA has mandated that a medication guide must be provided, must be provided to patients to warn them of the risk of these tendon related effects. And then I printed up the Avalox. It's six pages long. It is full six pages. And the leading sentence said, you read this before you start this course of therapy. And every time you get it again,
0: read it again, six pages. It is not like written in crayon either. Yeah, right, right. I'll tell you right now i 'll lay money on the table. There is nobody in the country who 's read all six pages except federal law suit people because when you give a patient six pages of information, they read nothing well
2: i 'm wondering whether the pharmacists, when you prescribe this stuff, give out this sheaf of papers for these people to read about this warning. Yes, it's, it is all about this problem. It is not about the other problems associated with this drug it 's about this problem.
1: Maybe what's really going on here is that the fluoroquinolones are so good at curing you of your disease. You feel so good you go out and exercise more, and it's that activity which is actually associated with the increase in tendon rupture. Yeah. It's a
0: theory. theory. Hold that thought. That's now. a bad theory, yeah, but it's a theory. I, I don't think that's going anywhere. And
2: finally, under the black boxes, a propoxifene. I don't want to say Darvon. I would say propoxyphene, the generic name. They finally put a black box around this drug. This drug has been around since 1957, and it should have had a black box put on it around 1958. The fact, <laughs> Well, I, only because it doesn't work. You know, there's two things. It doesn't work, and if you overdose on it, it does work. Right? It's very effective overdoses. And I remember when I was serving my country in the Indian Health Service, and that was in the 70s. 1970s? Yes, 1970s. Thank (laughs) you for the clarification, doctor. You could not, in the Indian Health Service, write a prescription for anything containing propoxifene. They had a ban on it, and if you wanted it, you had to make a special application. And this was throughout the federal government saying, well, this is the reason I wanted to, that that, 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 that. this drug does not work. It's been compared to, it's no better than acetaminophen. In fact, acetaminophen is probably Better. better. And it's a wonderful drug for overdosing on, and it took them 52 years to get a black box on this thing. Where have you been, FDA? You've been too busy screwing around with acetaminophen here, in my humble opinion.
1: The FDA is a political organization, and it's made some big errors lately, but I don't know what's going on there. And I think there's so many physicians, healthcare providers, like what is happening with the FDA? It seems to be a little schizophrenic and increasingly schizophrenic. I don't know how it all works. I would love to be able to have C-SPAN, have these... On TV, so we can watch what goes on there. Do these things get pushed through because there's one or two articulate people with a bone to pick and they push it through? I mean, I've been on P&T committees and that's how it works. Well, You have one articulate person who wants to push a drug, who does a good presentation, everybody rolls over. That's how I feel that this is going. What happens is they lobby these people just like you do
0: anyplace else. And if you made a different pain medication... Why wouldn't you take this one out of the market? Why wouldn't you want to cut its legs off? If you're the one who's coming up with a new antibiotic, why wouldn't you want to take Cipro's legs out from under it? So I think that there's a lot of things that go into these votes, and science isn't the only one. Why would they black box with the information we had droperidol, which was an excellent drug? Emergency docs used it all the time. Well, that's
2: a drug where the conspiracy theory really seems to bear itself out. It
1: does. Triperidol Compazine, and then magically along comes a new guy.
2: Yeah. Yes. So enough of the black boxes. My concern from a medical legal point of view relates to the quinolones. And I think if you're still prescribing Darvon, you deserve to get, <laughs> get nailed because yeah. <laughs> it was never good in the first place. Yeah.
0: But that's the reason to go after it. It's expensive. Of course, it had that nice white and pink color. It was attractive. That capsule looked like a small submarine. Yeah, I know that. Anything that big had to be good. Yeah, exactly. It was just a bad drug. But drilling
2: down, I am concerned about the use of the quinolones now. Because if a person ruptures their tendon and they say, doctor, could you have given me something else? Look what happened here. And the answer is, well, to tell you the truth, I could have given you azithromycin or some other drug for your bronchitis that you didn't need in the first place. I think that this is going to put a chill on the use of these drugs. I think maybe they should put a chill on it, but not because of tendon rupture, but because they don't need it in the first place. So I think you've got to be real careful now about what you're prescribing now that this black box is there.
1: But I've got a question for Greg. How does a lawyer prove that the fluoroquinolone you gave resulted in the tendon rupture? Because tendon ruptures occur all the time in people. How can you say this tendon rupture was because you gave this drug? How can you ever prove that? Well, you can't prove it completely, but what they can do is ask a
0: series of questions in court. Doctor, you were aware of the dangers of tendon rupture. You were aware that this was passed upon by the FDA. And yet, you carelessly, without any intent, I understand, to cause harm directly, but carelessly didn't consider other antibiotics, and now it's ruptured. We know there's an association, you would agree with
2: that. And there was no shared decision making with your patient. You didn't say, Well, here's our options. You prescribed the drug, the pharmacist gave the drug, and they gave them a sheaf of paper on the top of it. But that's the fact is they already got the drug and you gave the drug. I'm oh, sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. Now crawl off the stand, you miserable piece of
1: crap. Uh, take my house too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, so
2: that's enough of black
0: boxes. Greg, you have a couple of cases that you want to tell us about. I've got a couple of cases, and these are actual cases. We will cite them in the papers that come with this. Yes. We're uh, not going through any names. Yes, we've had some issues where
2: there's been some recommendations that we cite our sources, and now those sites will be in the Four-page thing that my sister does, summary. yes. And I think that's summary. a good idea.
0: Here's a relatively recent one. Emergency room physician orders a PSA test in the emergency oh, room Emergency prostate problem. I, can I understand uh, that. Exactly right. Now, with the best of intentions, I'm sure, it results in a high number, which, by the way, no one knows exactly what happens to this number. The high report is mailed to the man. It goes to his house not to his physician, but to his house. And then there was no explanation included about what the number meant. He didn't take it anywhere. And, of course, what does he do? He dies from prostate cancer three years later. They're suing the emergency physician, and this was a settlement case. Money changed hands on this case. This is a Wisconsin jury. finds for the plaintiff, an emergency doc ordering a test, that he had no business ordering in the emergency department. You never ask a question. You don't know what's going to happen to that result, and now we're in trouble. So why would we even order that test in the emergency department? Does it have the amount there
1: that this settled for?
0: No, it does not have the amount. It's a confidential settlement.
1: Confidential. 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 One billion? Well, we've heard this from Rich Milligan, one of our defense lawyers in the past, saying, particularly for the younger docs, you think more and more testing is good. As he has said a number of times on our various programs on MRAP, that it's so much harder for him to defend you when you order a test you didn't need that's abnormal, that you didn't follow up on, than it is to not get tests when they're not clinically indicated. Absolutely. Well, if he'd ordered a test
0: had called the family doctor and said and noted on his chart, Dr. Smith notified that he will be getting the results of this test. But this test went back to the patient. In all fairness, most lay people don't know what those tests mean. And in all fairness, most urologists don't even <laughs> I don't know, know what those tests test <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I mean,
2: some people kind of say, well, if it's over four, but I can tell you, we have some papers in our primary care database that says this is like a linear relationship. You can have cancer if you have a one or a two or a three. There's no magic cutoff at four. Right. So you got to be really careful about this. And certainly if it comes back 10 or 11, you are obligated, obviously, to follow this up. So we see papers all of the time where... And the more generic issue here is the unfollowed up x-ray, the unfollowed up test, the little gomer there that turns out to be a cancer in the lung that you die from. That happens so frequently that the issue of having a really, really, really tight system for tracking your x-rays in the emergency department, it's like emergency medicine 101 because these cases
0: come up all the time. Well, since we're on a roll here, let's talk about the next case. This is a Texas case. And it's failure to inform family of positive blood culture results for a child who's in the emergency department. The child goes on to have some sort of infection, strep viridans, I think it was, set up on a heart valve. And now the child needs to have major thoracic surgery. That result came back to the emergency department within 24 hours And nobody called the family, nobody called the pediatrician, nobody called anybody. Now, if all they had done was, say, talk to your pediatrician, call back for this result, this is what you do then, there would be no case here. But it went from sick kid to heart valve involvement with an infection to thoracic surgery to a lawsuit which ended in a substantial judgment. So, I mean, when we put these things together, the emergency department, again, ordered a test that it didn't, I mean, if you asked that question, somebody ought to answer that question. The family paid, or their insurance company paid, for that culture to be done. You at least ought to get the benefit of the test
2: that you had done. I got to think that this is a very old case very old case. The reason I say that is because we were under the delusion in the past of the importance of doing blood cultures in these kids with 103 fever and the 15,000 white count source unknown kind of thing. And I hope by now most doctors have gotten it that blood cultures in kids who you're going to send home are a waste of time. You ought not do it, not do it. <laughs> the point is, Rick, I agree with you. The science that you've stated is correct. Unfortunately, they did do it. Well, I'm saying you shouldn't do blood cultures on kids who are going home because I don't think you want to know the answers. And the other thing is is that when they were looked at this literature in a way in the past, they all had pneumococcus and that were positive, and they all cleared. So by the time they came back, they were fine. So it was like, don't do
0: it. This That's my a, advice. Don't this, do it. This is a 2008 settlement case yeah it probably started when the kid was like two you know well, it 2002 could, it, it could have all i'm telling you is it reinforces the idea that somebody has to follow up on what you send to the laboratory Now, did i overstate that would you support the idea
2: that in general blood cultures in kids should be done not in kids who are going home Would you support that?
0: Yes, I support that completely. In fact, I'm just one of those guys who does not do cultures very often. I don't think they tell us what we want to know. But if you're going to do it, you can't do it and not follow up on your test. Where do you stand on that,
2: Mel? I I, I think you're – oh, you are? I saw a little vacillation in your eyes there. You were just falling falling asleep. asleep. Okay, all right.
1: No, I'm with you. I think the post-pneumococcal vaccination era that we live in and strep pneumococcal vaccination that we live in, blood cultures, they were a marginal benefit in the 90s. 18th no influenza. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think
0: that's true. My point stands. If you're going yep. to <laughs> ask the question, don't do nothing with the answer. Yep. Well, you that's know, that's the other thing, point.
2: too, is is that The uh, false positive rate used to be about even with the true positive rate. Now we have virtually no bugs, and so the false positive rate has stayed the same, and the true bugs has gone down, so that the likelihood of your culture being a false positive is probably 80%.
1: Don't ask, don't tell, but if you ask, make sure you uh, get the results. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Bill Clinton, for (laughs) that. That's right.
2: Letters? We have time for a letter
0: or two? We have letters? Yes, we do. You want to take the first one, Greg? i will be happy to. Here's one that comes from a listener. I am an ED medical director in California. The local coroner for my ED is pressuring me to have my physicians sign death certificates when the primary attending physician for the patient is either unavailable or unwilling to do so for whatever reason. I am staunchly opposed to this. I was trained that, quote-unquote, emergency physicians do not sign death certificates. If an attending physician is unable to be found, and when the coroner needs to investigate and depose of the case, either signing off on a presumed cause of death, which would then lead or prevent them going on to an autopsy. He asks, am I off base here? Can you set me straight? What should I do? And this is from Gary Tampkin. We know Gary. Oh, yeah. yeah, we know Gary. Former President
1: of Iceland. Yep. Yes, he was. I like it. Yeah.
0: And he's assistant clinical professor at the University of California, San Francisco. And he's a regional director of operations for Valley Emergency Physicians. Yes, he is. Gary, you
2: know the answer. Yeah. You know the answer. You shouldn't be signing that thing. That signing, it, it says, I as a medical professional am attesting to the cause of death in this person. How could you possibly put your name on something like that? You can't do it. Is there anything further to say, gentlemen?
0: Well, I think the only thing is, whenever I was young, an intern kind of level person. That was person, before penicillin. That was Doctor. before penicillin. But whenever ever say, fill out something on the death certificate, I don't think there's a greater collection of misinformation in the United exactly. States than the cause of death on death certificates. I used to put down things like, short of breath. Heart stopped. <laughs> yeah, heart stopped. Short of breath. Do we actually know in most cases? And now that autopsy almost dropped off the map, I mean, there are very few autopsies done today as compared to when I was very young in medicine. I think unless there is a compelling reason for you to be signing off on these things, don't do it. The family doc knows what their medical history is. Let him do it.
2: And even then, sometimes they're not willing to do it because the circumstances of the death were unexpected and dad drops
0: dead. You know, if you have a 50-year-old who's dead, somebody ought to autopsy that case and do it right.
1: But what are we worried about? Because I grew up in a different country and used to do this all the time. What are we worried about? Are we worried that we're going to get sued because we wrote something on there that was incorrect? If somebody gets hit by a truck. If you're and little I pieces. Saying, uh, yeah, you, you can know, sign. What was the cause? You got hit by a truck. Yeah, but there are unexplained deaths. Sure. And if
0: you're invited in to that kind of situation, there can be questions of insurance There can be questions of why did he die, did his wife make sure that he's dead, all those other sorts of things that I don't want to be involved in that in the emergency Yeah, nobody's
2: going to argue with your case, but I think that Gary's really talking about these, we died on the floor, I don't know, we need to get the paperwork done to get him out to the funeral parlor. Right. So we all agree with that, that's that's cool. I'm
1: I'm not so flustered.
2: What about another version of that where doctors are called to the floor to pronounce people dead? Have you had a deal with that? Well, not at your place. I did that for 30 years. Yes, and we did that at our hospital for a while. And they said, well, only a doctor can tell you that the person's dead. Well, that's not true. A standardized nursing policy and procedure can be written to do that. And we have that in place now, and we've had it for a number of years. And I hope that you are not in the Stone Age where you're being asked to
0: pronounce people dead who are dead. Yeah, a lot of emergency docs are, Rick. And just understand that across this country, that still goes on. Why you need a doctor to say you're dead, I have no idea. I can tell
2: you none of our nurses have ever been wrong, to my knowledge.
0: (laughs) Which is actually better than our docs in the emergency department with CPR (laughs) resuscitation cases who woke up. Okay, it's wrap-up time. Wine of the month, Gregory? Well, we have two things in Wine of the Month. One is we have feedback on the white sangria recipe we gave, what, two months ago. And the feedback is overwhelmingly good. Now, you understand that's from your sister, Rick. But uh, (laughs) she has made the white sangria several times, and people have enjoyed it immensely. Did you want to
2: reiterate what that was? Because we had it here. You made it at my house. And I would never had white sangria, and I was just uh, dropped my drawers. Yeah,
0: you liked that, <laughs> didn't you? Yes. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, good image. Yes.
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we'll let them go back in their previous issues and get that one out. But I would tell you right, that's well, a great wine. But what is this one called? The wine we're pushing today, and again, we don't get anything from wineries; we don't get free bottles. But we were fortunate enough last night to have a Jekyll, a Jekyll. 2006 Merlot. This is a Monterey County wine and it was I think in 2005 or 2006 this was like a $12 bottle of wine. I would assume that the 2006 is about that but an excellent full-bodied Merlot. This was
2: a gift to me from last week we did our board review course. That's a plug for the board review course, by the way. I noticed And the that. hotel, you know, gives you a little basket of little goodies, and this was in there. And it's always swill. Right, you know, exactly. Swill. But we opened <laughs> That's that That's why you night. gave
0: it to me last night. To My drink. wife opened it, and it was absolutely terrific. <laughs> terrific. We loved it. So for those of you who are out there, it's Jekyll, 2006 Merlot. The boys at the table support it. There you go. Okay, that is August.
2: August. Thank you very much, Risk Management Monthly. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. And please send in those comments, questions, and letters. We like them. We're going to do more of them in the upcoming issues. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.